The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We are continuing our study in 1 John this morning. I'm going to be looking at verse 10b through 12 of chapter 3. Let me just say here how grateful I am for your faithfulness to be here for the teaching of the Word of God. Those of you that are here, those of you that come join us every Sunday morning live to, to sit and watch us and listen, we appreciate that. We appreciate your hunger for the Word of God, your desire to learn and grow, and I appreciate the feedback I get. You know, when I say something wrong, I hear about it. You know, I get an email, and I appreciate that. Okay, I mean, I really do. You know, sometimes I disagree with you because you think I'm wrong and I don't think I'm wrong. But other times you bring stuff up and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that you're right. You know, so I appreciate that. We learn and we grow together. Last week we looked at verse 12 and I talked to you about the unbiblical, get that unbiblical doctrine of the serpent seed. All right. Later I'll show you another text that really refutes their claims. But today we want to back up to verse 10. That's where we ended our previous study. And look at verse 10 that says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, I've been saying through this whole study of chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, that I prefer the Christian Standard Bible here, translation, over the ESV. And I like the ESV, but I just don't like what the ESV does here. Practice righteousness, they say. All right, look at the the Christian Standard Bible says, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious, whoever does not do what is right. So notice the difference here. We got one practice righteousness, you know, whoever doesn't practice it. Well, what does that mean? How, How often do you have to do something to practice it? A lot? Not too much? Here's what I don't like about it. This is based upon the use of the present tense forms of the verbs, in verses 3, 6 through 9, uh, and the idea of concerning sinning. And it's argued that the tense denotes habitual sinning. But the adding of the word practice is not justified by Greek grammar. As has been pointed out by more than one competent Greek scholar, the appeal to the present tense invites intense suspicion. There's no other text that you're going to cite where the Greek present tense unaided by qualifying words, can carry this idea of significance. So it's just, it's thrown in there because they don't understand what in the world these verses are saying, so they add new words to make it a little bit more palatable for you. It is my opinion that the CSB got it right here, translating whoever does not do what is right. Now, I need you to remember here that the verse divisions are not inspired. Okay? And sometimes they, they're very helpful. I mean, I like I said, I wouldn't... We'd have a hard time following each other. They weren't there. But they can do injustice like they did here because verse 10 should be split in the middle. All right? The beginning, the end of verse 10 should be verse 11. All right? Because this section we have been looking at, verses 4 through 9, conclude with the first half. That first half goes with those previous verses. And I think it's preferable to take the last half of the verse that begins a new section. Now, what the first half of verse 10 is saying is this. We can tell who the children of God are from the children of the devil 
by their faith. The children of the devil sin in that they do not believe that Yeshua is the Christ. The children of God are made evident by their faith in Christ. That ends that section. And if you got questions, go back and listen to that. We ended with this a couple weeks ago. And then verse 10, starting a new section, says, Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. Alright? With this half of the verse 10, it begins a new discussion on love. This section marks the beginning of the second major part of this book that runs from 3.11 to 5.12. And the similarity between 3.11 and 3.23, both of which mention the command to love one another, form an inclusio. You remember what an inclusio is, right? No? In biblical studies, inclusio is a literary device uh, just kind of bracketing something, alright? So he says it in verse 11, he says it in 24. This whole section is about love. It's bracketed by that. It is an inclusio. Alright? So this section we're going to be looking at, I don't know for how long, is going to be about love. Now look at it. Whoever does not do what is right is not a God. Especially the one who does not love his brother. What exactly is that saying? Not doing what is right and not loving your brother means that you are not of God. Can we agree on that much? I mean, because that's just what it says, okay? So we should be able to agree there, okay? That's what it says. But here's the question. What does it mean? What does that mean? See, most people, most interpreters would say this means that they're not Christians. And as a matter of fact, the nearly inspired version, the NIV, translate it this way. On the bottom there, 310. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Hmm. So the NIV translators have taken the phrase not of God and translated it as not God's child. Now, the ESV, the Youngs, uh, CSB, NASB, BSB, LEB, KJV, JUB, ASV, just to name a few, all have not of God. But the NIV paraphrased the text and misinterpreted at the same time. Listen, there is nothing in this text about not being a child of God. John could have said that. He knows how to use the language. And here's the thing. Nor if you don't love your brother, he says, you're not of God. Now, if you're not a Christian, how can you love or not love your brother? They're not your brother if you're not a Christian. Agreed? Okay. So you have to be a child of God to hate your brother. He's not your brother if you're not a child of God and you can't hate him because he's not your brother. The unsaved person has no Christian brother to hate. He's talking to believers here, people. The phrase, is not of God, does not mean not born of God. John is using not of God here to refer to fellowship. The one who does not do what is right, he's saying, is not abiding in Christ. Especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. The absence of love for one's brother Christian shows that that individual does not 
walk in fellowship with God. That's what he means by not of God. Love is one of the most important manifestations of righteous behavior, according to Matthew 22, 37-39. He's not... This whole epistle, people, we've been talking about is about fellowship. I've been saying that since we started doing this epistle. That this thing is about... is written, first of all, to those who trust Christ. He's writing to believers... And John's purpose in this epistle is to instruct his readers on how to have fellowship with Yeshua and the Father. But most see this epistle as a series of tests on how to tell who's saved and who's not saved. I, I just think that's terrible. For one reason, it turns you into a Pharisee. Oh, it's your job now to judge everybody. I saw them do this. They're not a Christian. If it was test, it'd be test for you, not for you to use for everybody else, okay? But it's not a test at all about that. And if that's your framework, that these are tests, then when John says, whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister, you take that to mean the unloving person is not a Christian, right? Excuse me. <laughs> uh Silence. Please silence your cell phone. <clears throat> you take it to mean he's not a Christian. Now, let me give you a quote from John MacArthur. Let me just say this. I quote John MacArthur a lot, usually when I disagree with him. <laughs> I agree with a lot of what he says. Okay, Like I said, I was a disciple of his for years and years. I learned a lot from the man. He teaches verse by verse. You've got to love him for that. Okay, I disagree with some things he says. And when I do, I'll bring it out because he's a prominent teacher and a lot of people know him. That's why I pick on him. I don't want to pick on Joe Schmo. You don't know him. You don't care about him. All right. This is someone you know. MacArthur writes this. He, he holds the view that this book is about, is a test. Okay. So he says this. Here's one of John's keys to determining, key determining factors to identify true Christians. When someone claims to be a Christian, someone claims to be in union with God and union with Jesus Christ, possessing eternal life, we are instructed here to examine the character of their love life. I don't really think we're told to examine that. For therein lies the proof of their claim. Christians who are genuinely born of God manifest that transformation by means of righteousness and love. So he's saying, and this is John's view, he's a lordship salvationist. He says, listen, if you're a Christian, you're going to demonstrate it in every area of your life. You're just going to look at them and say, yep, they're a Christian. Now, a little later, about two paragraphs later, he says this, it is impossible for a true believer not to love other believers. Is that y'all's experience? Huh? No? <laughs> it's impossible. So if you're a Christian, guess what? You're going to love everybody. S.L. Johnson, commenting on this verse, says this, so to not love the brethren is evidence that we are not truly the children of God. So he, Johnson goes right along with them. So here's what they're saying. Listen, if you're a believer, it's impossible for you not to love other believers. Now hold that thought for a minute. Okay? And look what Paul says about what love is. Love is patient. It's kind. Yeah, no Christians have no problem with those things, right? Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. <coughs> Excuse me. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, according to MacArthur and Johnson and others, you could put it like this. A true believer is patient and kind. A true believer does not envy or boast. They are not arrogant or rude. A true believer does not insist on his own way. Am I thinning the crowd? <laughs> A true believer is not irritable or resentful. They do not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. A true believer bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now remember, if you're a true believer, it's impossible for you not to love your brother. So let me ask you, are you sure you're a Christian? Are you always patient and kind to others? I think you get my point. And this is my problem with the Lordship teaching. It causes believers to doubt their salvation. Because let me tell you something, people. Nobody does this perfectly, except the Lord Yeshua the Christ when He walked this earth. Okay? Nobody does this perfectly. And you say, well, I do it most of the time. Well, I'm only going to look at times you don't. And then you're going to not be a Christian those times, right? Oh, he's gone. Check him off the list. Look what he did. That's not very loving. Uh, it's just, you know, the Bible doesn't cause believers to doubt their salvation. If the Bible did, what book would just tear Christians apart the whole time? 1 Corinthians. The most messed up church that there ever was. And Paul starts out to the saints at Corinth. He calls them saints by calling. He doesn't say, you guys are not even Christians, you're so messed up. He affirms who they are, then he says, get your act straight. Believers, let me get you in on something. You're not gonna, you're gonna have to think about this for a while before you be able to accept it probably, but a true Christian can fail to love his brothers and sisters in Christ. I bet you probably knew that though, didn't you? <laughs> and listen, that is precisely why Lazarus, aka John Eliezer, the author of this book, keeps bringing up the theme of love over and over. We've talked about this before. We're going to talk about it more. Look at 3.11. He says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is the message. The word message here is from the Greek angalia. And it means message, announcement, news. Earlier, John wrote, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, the structural parallel between 3.11 and 1.5 points to the relationship between these two verses. The one who loves his fellow Christian resides in the light. And to be in the light is to be in fellowship with God. So this is the message, he says. You heard this message from the beginning. What beginning is he talking about here? We could go back to Deuteronomy 6. We could go to Leviticus 19. They both say the Israelites should love one another. This is not something new. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this. 
I am Yahweh. What's that mean? You better do what I say. I'm Yahweh. So you listen, okay? I mean, we could sum up the whole Old Covenant in two commands, right? Because Yeshua did that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, Romans 13. But verse 11 here looks at the experience of the readers. Alright? He says, this is the message that you heard from the beginning. Well, they weren't back there in Leviticus. So he's talking to them about their relationship. It's a reference to Yeshua's revelation to his disciples. It's the, the message they heard from the beginning of their Christian lives. From the gospel when it started to be preached. And this is consistent with earlier usage of the phrase in 1 John 1, 1 and 2, 7. In 2, 7 he says, Beloved, I'm writing you not a new commandment, but an old commandment that you heard from the beginning. That old commandment is the word you have heard. So the message that John and his followers had heard from the beginning was Yeshua's command to love one another. That's what he told them. Remember when we studied John in the upper room, he's with his disciples, and he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, we just saw Leviticus told them to love one another, so how is the command to love new? What's new about it? Well, the new part here is this. Just as I have loved you. (laughs) That kind of raises the bar a little bit, doesn't it? The sacrificial work of Christ on the cross of Calvary is the new standard for the Christian's love for his fellow believers. They had seen his love for them during his earthly ministry. I mean, they lived with him for three years. They watched him. And most recently, in this upper room discourse, they watched him wash the disciples' feet. But they would only understand its depth through the cross. Now, why does John tell his readers this if MacArthur is right and it's impossible for true believers not to love other believers? Why tell them to love one another when they can't help but do so? All you got to do is be a true believer and then everything's all right. Okay? So here's the thing. If you trust Christ and then you're having trouble loving your fellow brothers, then what's the problem? You're not a Christian? So then what do you do? Come back to the altar again. Next Sunday, right? I mean, where, where does that leave you? If you believe you've trusted Christ, you understand the gospel, you believe the gospel, you're still struggling in your Christian life, you've got to grow. Okay? It's not a grow. It's not about going back and getting saved again. Because that You can't do it again. You're, once you do it, it's done. All right? The New Testament, which is written to believers, is full of commands to love one another. Why? Because we need to be told it. We need to be reminded of it. And we need to continually be told that we have to love one another. Because it's not an easy thing to do in some cases, right? Some people are easy to love. Some are not so easy to love, right? Let's talk about love for a minute. I think a lot of people don't really know what biblical love is. They couldn't define it. They've never really experienced it. And sadly today, some of the most perverse practices known to man are being described as love. Things that God has declared are an abomination, such as sodomy, homosexuality, something that God has pronounced His judgment and condemnation upon, people are describing as love. Same-sex love, that's an oxymoron. If it's same-sex, it's an abomination. Okay? That's what the... Now, our culture, whoa, you're not being loving. 
Just telling you what the truth is, okay? But people don't want the truth today. They don't want it at all. They want to make up their own truth, go their own way, do their own thing. And you have others who see love as agreeing with everybody. If you don't agree with everybody, and their doctrine can be, you know, bonkers, but you're like, oh, it's okay. You know, we got to live in harmony with you. You just got to get along with everybody. Accept them no matter what. Listen, if we take all the modern definitions of love, we can see, I think, there's a thread running right throughout them all. And it's simply this. That love, in some shape or form, is understood as being something that gives you self-gratification. That's how people, that's what people believe love is. Okay? You might say, I love chocolate. And my wife would say that. You know? You might say, I love the beach. Cheryl would say that. Okay? If you're a woman, you might say, I love shopping. I don't think any guy would ever said that. <laughs> a guy might say, I love hunting, or I love boating, or whatever. What you are describing are things that make you feel good. You get a measure of self-gratification from those things. They just make you feel good, so I love that. But when someone says their marriage or their relationship is over because they've fallen out of love, it's not a hole that you fall in or fall out, okay? What that means is they aren't getting out of that relationship what they feel is right. The relationship is not making them feel good. Now, that is not the Bible's definition of love. It's not something that revolves around self or self-gratification. But at the very center of biblical love is self-sacrifice. That's the foundation of everything that can be described biblically as love. The love of God that has been displayed and manifest for us in Christ is the love that we ought to show to one another. Again, we could remind ourselves of what John said in chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him. Remember, abide, mano, is the word fellowship. The person who says, listen, I'm living in fellowship with God, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Yeshua was never unloving. He was always kind. He was always gracious. So we just need to walk as he walked. That's what love is. John had seen the love of Christ. I said he lived with them. He saw it in the upper room as he washed their feet. Took the basin of water. Became a slave. Took a servant's position. He then heard Yeshua say, A new commandment I give you. Then John saw the supreme demonstration of Christ's love when he willingly went to the cross to die for our sins. When John speaks of love, he points us to the supreme example of Yeshua laying down His life for us. He'll do this in chapter 3, verse 16. We know love because He went to the cross. That's how we know love. It's not something you just talk about. It's action. He demonstrated His love for us. Thus, a helpful definition of biblical love is self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one love. That's biblical love. Okay? Biblical love requires continual effort. Because at the heart of loving others is putting that person ahead of yourself. And listen, that's always going to be a battle. Because you love yourself tremendously. And so you want to make sure you're first. But biblical love is putting others first. For this reason, the New Testament as a whole and John in this letter never tire of exhorting us over and over to love one another. He's already reminded his little children 
of Yeshua's Old New Commandment in chapter 2, verse 7 through 11. And when we get to chapter 4, he's going to devote a major section there to loving one another. In fact, six times, in first, or five times in 1 John and once in 2 John, he refers directly to Yeshua's command that we love one another. This little book. And he gives an allusion to it in 2.7. That's a lot of reminding about love to people to whom it is impossible not to love. You get the point. It's not impossible for you not to love somebody. It's really, as a matter of fact, it's really easy for you not to love somebody. Okay? You're going to have to work at loving somebody. What John means by loving one another, he first spells out negatively, pretty strongly. In the next verse, he says, don't be like Cain and kill other people. That's not love. All right? So verse 12, he says, we should not be like Cain. And everyone says, yeah, of course. I mean, we understand that killing people wouldn't be love, right? He was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, what's interesting about this verse is this is the only explicit reference to the Tanakh in John's epistles. The only time he references anything from the Old Testament. And this is uh, Genesis chapter 4 he's talking about here. Also, it's the only time he uses a proper name other than Yeshua, God, Christ. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, right? At least we know that, hey, he killed his brother. shouldn't be doing that. Why did he kill him? Well, let's look at the text and see what we can discover anything from. We looked at this verse last week briefly, but I'm going into a little more detail here. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. All right. A couple of these things, uh, a lot of stuff, what I say on, on these two verses, I pulled from uh, Jeff Benner, if you never heard of him. Jeff Benner is the head of the Ancient Hebrew Research Center. He's got some incredible stuff dealing with the Hebrew language. Well, Benner talks about the names here that I think is interesting. Uh, the Hebrew word for name is Shem. You're familiar with that. A lot of times you'll see Hashem, the name. All right? For us, names are just tags that you know identify one person from another. But the word Shem literally means breath or character. And so when you see something about the name of God, it's not talking about, oh, I know his name, Yahweh. Because, you know, Psalm 9.10 says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Oh, your name's Yahweh, I know that. No, it's those who know your character. That's name. Those who know the character of God, if you understand God, (laughs) it's not hard to trust Him. Okay? Not hard at all. So that's the idea of name. It's reflected of the character. And the Hebraic meanings of the name Cain and Abel are windows into their character. Well, Cain is from the Hebrew word kayen, which means to acquire or possess something. And Abel is havel, which means to be empty, often translated as vain or vanity in the sense of being empty of substance. So Cain is a possessor. He's one who has substance. While Abel is empty of substance, Cain is what we would call a man of character, but Abel is vain. Now that kind of, you were like, wait a minute, I thought Abel was the good guy and Cain was the bad guy. Well, this, for some reason, they're giving us some insight into this here in this text. Alright, so maybe Abel's not the greatest brother. I'm not making excuses for Cain, okay? (laughs) 
It's telling you what their names mean, all right? Now, in the normal Hebraic accounting of multiple births, conception and then birth of each child is mentioned as we see. Let's go to Genesis 27 here. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because Yahweh has looked at my affliction, and now my husband will love me. Then it says, she conceived again and bore a son. And she said, because Yahweh has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Now twice more, the text goes on to say, Leah conceived and bore a son, Reuben. She conceived and bore a son, Simeon. Now notice that there are four conceptions and four births, right? That's how it works, people, right? You understand that, right? She conceived, then you have a birth, okay? Well, in Genesis 4-2, it says, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Again, she bore his brother. Notice there's only one conception here, right? But there's two births. Now, the Hebrew word here for again is yasaf, and it means to add something. In this case, the birthing of Abel was added to the birthing of Cain. Cain and Abel were twins. Okay? Adam Clark writes this. From the very face of this account, it appears evident that Cain and Abel were twins. Cain was the firstborn. Abel, his twin brother, came next. Okay? They're twins. That's what the text tells us. Okay? And if you were to... uh, Take your concordance and do, just like highlight the words conceived and bore and then search. You're going to find all through Genesis, she conceived and bore, she conceived and bore, she conceived and bore. Because that's how the Bible describes it. But here it's different. Now, what this does, a couple things, it destroys the serpent seed doctrine thing, okay? Because it clearly says that Adam knew his wife. Not Satan, not the serpent. She conceived and bore Cain. So Adam was Cain's father, and he was Abel's father. They were twins. Both were the sons of Adam and Eve. Alright? Now, let's move on in the Genesis text. 4.3 And in the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the first fruits of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, I want you to notice the stylistic variation in the order of the brothers in this passage. First, we have Cain and Abel. Then it switches Abel and Cain. The order of the brothers is expected when the sacrifices are offered, but it's reversed when God responds. Both in style and in content, in God's regard, Abel comes first and Cain comes last. Now, the normal hierarchy of the firstborn and the younger child is turned upside down. Does that surprise anybody? That's, that's a normal thing we see all through the Scriptures, right? This reversal, as the ascent of the youngest, is a frequent moffet in the Bible, particularly in Genesis, when the younger child is consistently raised above his or her siblings. Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Rachel over Leah. Joseph over his brothers. Ephraim over Manasseh. All right? They both bring an offering to Yahweh. And Yahweh has regard to one and not to the other. Now, these guys are bringing an offering. We often assume that 
the first commandments that God gave were to Moses at Mount Sinai. Right? We think before that, people just wandered around. They had no knowledge of anything, right? That's not a good idea at all. God was communicating with men the whole time. They knew His commands, at least some of them. Adam and Eve and their children lived, or Adam and Eve lived in the garden with God. They walked with God for a period of time. So they were very familiar with God. Now when they got kicked out, I think they probably taught their sons a few things about what God wanted and didn't want. Let's look at this text. Let's jump back to Genesis 7 and Noah here. It says, Then Yahweh said to Noah, Go in the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, a male and his mate. Anything strike you as interesting in that verse? Hmm? All right, we got clean and unclean. So what's unusual about that? God has said there's clean animals, there's unclean animals. What's diff- What's wrong with that? This is 1,400 years before the law was ever given. So how did he know what was clean and what wasn't clean? Yahweh had been dealing with man, giving man instruction. They were in a relationship with the Lord. They knew what. It appears from the narrative in Genesis 4 that Abel obeyed those commands and Cain didn't. Alright? As Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? See, he, he's the firstborn. They both bring sacrifices. I'm the firstborn. I should be accepted. Okay? He's, the firstborn is the right to everything. The secondborn is, you know, they're way down the line. Alright? And so he's, he gets upset about it. And so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? By doing well, I think if you do what you're supposed to do, if you bring what I've told you to bring, we'll be alright. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. So Yahweh tells Cain, listen, if you do right, I'll accept it. And didn't accept it, so that must mean he didn't do right in bringing that offering. But, Cain doesn't listen. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And this is interesting in the Hebrew, because every time it says someone spoke, it, then in the Hebrew it will tell you what they said. But here, he spoke to him, and, that, and he doesn't tell you what he said. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Now, I believe Young's has something in that text that says after, you know, he spoke to his brother and he said, and Young's gets that from the Septuagint. Alright? Yeah, let's go into the field. It says, Cain rose up against his brother and he killed him. So this is, here we have the first murder in the Bible. You know, sibling rivalry is a fact of life, people. Do you understand that? It is a fact of life. When Hamlet's uncle Claudius murdered his own brother in order to become king, he confesses, Oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon it. A brother's murder. And he's referencing Cain and Abel, who slew his brother. Listen, this family story, Adam and Eve, they didn't have a happy ending. Alright? One of their sons kills another one of their sons. Now, why did Cain kill Abel? Why did he do that? Oh man, there's tons of, you know, rationalization on this, people trying to explain it. What's interesting is the, you know, the Jews and the Midrash, they come up with all kinds of things. 
Uh, one Midrash boils it down and says, the cause of much strife in families throughout the ages is the division of property inheritance. So they're fighting over property. They're fighting over inheritance. The text doesn't tell us every, anything about that. Uh, one of the Midrash says this, Seeing they were the only two humans around, Cain and Abel decided to divide ownership of the world. It's only two of us, let's divide the world up, okay? One would take all the lands and things that grow from it, while the other would take movable objects such as animals and the like. Thus one became a farmer, the other a shepherd. It came to pass, however, that Cain said to Abel, The land you stand on is mine. And Abel responded, You are wearing what is mine. And so one of them said, strip, and the other one said, fly, get off my ground. It was out of this quarrel, they said, that Cain rose up and murdered Abel. That's Midrash Bereshit Rabbah 22.7. But if you take all the Midrash explanations together, they come up with basically three reasons. Money, a woman, or theology. I love that they threw theology in there. You know? They're fighting over theology, so you, know, you're not, you don't hold my theological persuasion, so I'm going to kill you. Okay, yeah, that's that's good theology there, right? All right, we'll we'll come back to that. Why did Yahweh accept Abel's offering but not Cain's? Some say it's because Cain brought vegetables, Abel brought a sacrifice. Well, the problem with that is that even during the temple times, God accepted sacrifices from vegetation. There was meal offerings, there was grain offerings. Leviticus chapter two gives a whole list of these offerings that you can bring to the Lord. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes this. The offering was a gift. I think we all get that, right? He's coming to God. He's bringing a gift to God. When a gift is rejected, there are two possible reactions. If you, the giver, ask what went wrong and you try to do better, you are genuinely trying to please the other person. Now, that's what he should have done. Okay, Lord, I brought the wrong offering. He says, if I do right, I should try to figure it out. Then he says this. If you become angry with the recipient, it becomes retrospectively clear that your concern was not with the other, but with yourself. In other words, well, you're mad that he didn't like what I brought him. Well, he brought the wrong thing. I think we can speculate all day long, because the text in 4, Genesis 4, really doesn't tell us why Yahweh accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. But the writer of Hebrews does. In Hebrews 11.4, by faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. See, these two boys, they bring an offering to God. One's accepted, the other's rejected. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable. This is from the Greek word palus, and it means greater or more important. He brought a greater sacrifice. Why was Abel's sacrifice better? It was better because it was offered in faith. And that's the thrust of this whole chapter. Chapter 11 is about faith. The thing that sets these brothers apart, people, is faith. And if you take that and put it over in 1 John, you understand that's what he's talking about. The people who believe, who have faith, and there's others who don't. And they're not righteous. So the thing that sets them apart is faith. Now, to do something by faith means that you do it in response or according to the Word of God. It was by faith because he brought it in response to God's Word. He must have believed something that God revealed to him, and he followed what God said. Now back to 4.4, he talks here about the fat portions. The separate mention here of fat tells us that the lamb had been slain. 
So it's not intrinsic merit in the firstborn of the flock above the fruit of the ground. It was faith in God's appointed means that made the difference. See, Abel understood one of the greatest truths a man can know. Abel understood the way in which it is necessary to approach God. He understood that God is approached only through faith. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You know, there's a lot of people today who think they can approach God like Cain did. On my own, I'll do this. I'll do this for God. I'll do that for God. God doesn't want any of that. He wants you to trust Him. He wants you to believe in Him. See, Abel illustrates for us the way of faith. And we can only approach God through faith in the person of Christ. Hebrews 11.4 goes on to say, through which He was commended as righteous. Now, what's the antecedent of through which? It's not sacrifice, but it's faith. It was through faith that He was righteous. The reason the author of 1 John gives for this murder is because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain is an example of unbelief. And again, that goes right back to our text. Hebrews 11 forces by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. And Paul tells us that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So he had to have a command from God to follow. And God said, this is how you worship me? He did it that way. Cain's disobedience came from a lack of faith which resulted in his first, first in his disobedience and then in his hatred. There's no question in my mind that they had been commanded to bring animal sacrifice. But he didn't do it. Abel did it. Cain didn't. And that's why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and He didn't accept Cain's. And He told Cain, if you do right, I will accept it. You know, it's interesting here because Cain and Abel had the same parents, right? They're raised in the same home. They had the same influences. We can presume that Cain had a godly upbringing just as Abel. Their parents, after all, had walked in the garden with Yahweh. In the cool of the day. Their parents had certainly told these boys how to honor God. How to live for God. I'm sure that they equipped them to love and serve Yahweh. But Cain just chose not to. No. Not going that way. I'm not doing that. So how did Cain kill Abel? How did he do it? Now the book of Jasser says this. And Cain hastened and rose up and took the iron part of his plowing instrument with which he suddenly smote his brother and he slew him. And Cain spilt the blood of his brother Abel upon the earth. And the blood of Abel streamed upon the earth before the flock. So, you know, again, there's a lot of guesses as to what happened. But our text in Genesis really doesn't tell us how he killed him. I'm sure that a Democrat would make a case for using AR-15. Because AR-15s get blamed for everything, you know. But I think that our text in 1 John does shed some light on this, Okay. It says he murdered his brother. The Greek word for murder here is svadzo, which means to butcher. This Greek verb occurs in the Septuagint in a number of settings involving sacrifice. It's used in Leviticus 1.5 to refer to the slaying of sacrificial animals. So svadzo is used in classical Greek to refer to the slaughtering of victims for sacrifice by cutting their throat. Cutting the jungle, jugular. So, it's as if Cain said, 
Oh, oh God, you don't like my sacrifices. That's not good enough. You have to have blood. All right, you want blood, Lord? Here's blood. And he cuts his brother's throat. There's your sacrifice. I mean, it's just as defiant and in the face as you can get. Why did he kill him? Well, in the biblical story, Cain, I think, had several motives, but I think it boils down to envy and jealousy. Again, he was the firstborn. His brothers accepted over him. That causes tremendous envy, tremendous jealousy. Let me give you a definition of envy. It's discontent or uneasiness at the sight of another's excellence or good fortune, accompanied with some degree of hatred and desire to possess equal advantage. I wonder, do we really appreciate the seriousness of how bad envy and jealousy can be among God's people? Because John is likening it to murder. The murder of Abel by Cain, right at the very beginning. The very first murder comes about because he's jealous of his brother. He's envious of his brother. And it says, the text says, Cain was of the evil one. Now, like I told you, the serpent seed people say, see that? He's, he is just, it means he's born of the devil. Well, just like not of God in verse 10 doesn't mean born of God, so here, of the evil one doesn't mean born of the evil one. The description has no parallel in Genesis account. But in some of the Jewish texts, um, in T. Benjamin chapter 7, and in the first or second century apocalypse of Abraham, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain is regarded as an act inspired by the devil. Inspired by the devil. Now, the word evil here is panaros, and it means evil. But the grammatical construction could be masculine singular, as it's translated here, the evil one, or it could be neuter singular, of evil. In the immediate context, this imagery serves to illustrate 1 John 3, 8, that says the one who practices sin is of the devil. And so here we see him practicing sin. He's of the devil. This is also similar to John 8.44 where Yeshua told his adversaries, you people are from your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. In both Jewish and early Christian writings, Cain serves as a model for those who deliberately disbelieve. He's an unbeliever. He just will not trust God. Now, the false teachers in John's day were advocating that the problem for mankind is ignorance. We need to learn special knowledge. You know, their whole thing was gnosis. You've got to have knowledge. You need this special knowledge from God. And what John is saying here is that that's not man's chief problem, ignorance. Man's chief problem is rebellion and sinfulness in his heart towards God. Cain serves here as the negative example not to follow. Instead of loving his brother, he did the opposite. He brutally murders his brother. I think he literally sacrificed him to God. Now, the reason the author of 1 John gives for this murder is, he says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, again, we find this contrast all through here of righteous and evil, just as we've seen even in, in the Gospel of John, light and darkness. Dark, righteousness and evil. That's John comparing the two. One is the unbeliever. He is unrighteous. He has nothing to do with God. He's evil. Now, Since hatred is the opposite of love, I think we could define hatred as a selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in disregarding others' good as I seek my own interest. 
You know, the world is motivated by self-interest. Self-sacrifice to the world is crazy. But to the Christian, it's love. We're called to do that. And that's why if they see a Christian living the way they should, they're kind of shocked. Like, why would you do that? I mean, they're surprised. You probably, hopefully you've seen it. You know, a Christian living out his righteousness and the world looks at him like, what's going on there? Why do they do that kind of stuff? Believers, it's easy to hate others. Okay, if they don't agree with our theology, if they don't, you know, agree with our politics, you know, on and on. We go, you know, we just, it's easy. And it's easy because we're selfish. And way too often we disregard others' good because we're seeking our own interests. We don't care about them. I'm coming first here. And this is why over and over in 1 John and the entire New Testament, we are called again and again to love one another. It's a big deal. Okay? It's a big deal. And those first disciples rocked the world because they were marveling because they love one another. Look at these people, man. They're sacrificing for each other. They care about one another. And let me just tell you, people, biblical love is not natural. It's supernatural. Okay? It's only as we walk in fellowship with God, depending upon the Holy Spirit, that we can live this way. And when the world sees this supernatural, sacrificial love, it takes notice. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. I pray that we would glean some things from this, Lord. Uh, Father, help us to understand how important love is in our lives. Help us also to understand that It's not easy and it's not natural. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. The important thing is to just, no matter what or how your day is going, (laughs) whether it make you smile or make you frown, you have to continue to strive to... Be patient with one another and, you know, just hold your ground. And if you're going to yell, just go out in the corner or somewhere and come back. <laughs> you know, just, just the thing. Just try to do that. Well, I like what you said about if you're having a good day or a bad day. Because, you know, if you're having a good day, isn't it easier to put up with others and love others? Yeah, yeah. But if you're having a bad day, or how about you ever run into someone that's just rude and ornery yeah. and you want to just yeah. respond with the same thing? They might be having a really bad day. They might have lost, just lost somebody. They might have a catastrophe in their life and need someone to be a little sympathetic with them instead of retaliating. You know, I I just think so often our natural action is to, well, my natural reaction. I don't put you in my category, but, you know, I got to keep remembering vengeance is mine, said the Lord. I will repay. Let him deal with it, okay? Because our responsibility is to treat another, one another with love. And if we did that, I think Christians would have much more of an effect on the world in which we live. Much more of an effect. We'd stand out, for sure. Okay? Anybody else? We done? Yes? I have a question for you. Those of us who are in the military, uh-huh. how do we practice love when we're given orders to kill? Okay, um, that's a good question. Um the question is, how do we pra- in the military, how do we practice love when we're ordered to kill? Um, well, 
I think when we join the military, all right, our government is telling us this is what we should do. Now, again, if you're a conscious objector, I think that should be noted up front and probably shouldn't go in the military. You know, the Bible says thou shalt not murder, okay? And war is a whole different thing than murdering, okay? Murder is a personal thing where I don't like you, I'm killing you. Whereas war, I mean, the Bible talks about war a lot. God told David, go in there and kill them all, babies, children, wipe them all out. You know, we see war all through the Bible. So I don't, I think there's just war. And so therefore I think that, you know, we are under orders and we're doing, I was in the military, um, we're doing what we're called to do. But some Christians don't believe that. And I think that's fine. If that, if that is your belief, then fine. You file as a conscientious objector. And you don't, you know, you don't go in there and do that. Okay? Because if you sign up, you know, it's pretty much most, especially now, it's voluntary. You know, no one's been drafted since Vietnam. You know, so you go in, you go in on your own free will, and if you have to kill somebody, <laughs> I think it'd be pretty hard, you know, because, again, you know, I don't want to get into politics here, but it's all about money, and we're killing other people for what? You know, I don't... Anyway, let's let's not go there. <laughs> Do what? I'm not sure the government. <laughs> no, the government has its net foot on my neck. Okay. <laughs> okay, Rico. Yeah, I'm I'm working on that. So, anybody else? Right. Oh, Hacksaw Ridge, right. He was a Jehovah's Witness or something, right? Seventh-day Adventist, something. Seventh-day Adventist, okay. But yeah, I mean, that was, I love that movie. It was a powerful movie, you know. What I liked about it is the way he influenced his fellow brothers and sisters by what? By just being fake, doing what he said he was going to do and honoring, you know, he was an honorable. They just thought, you're scared, that's why you don't want to do it. Well, he showed them, I'm not afraid of anything, you know, and man, it just, yeah, I was powerful. And I think that's the thing, when Christians live out their faith, it affects the world. They just don't see it too often. (laughs) They really don't.